I'm Amy Thomas from Austin, Texas. Our scripture reading today is from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Church family, I am so excited about jumping in to the book of Acts with one another. And because this is my hope, this is my prayer, is that God shakes us awake, that God stretches our perspective. Because the book of Acts is something quite incredible. Because in this, in this writing, we find some uh, phenomenal things. We, we, we see what happens when the Holy Spirit arrives. We see how the church is born and we see how the gospel begins to break every barrier going throughout this world. And if that is the case, Acts is not just some storytelling of history. It's not some static and fixed thing. It's something that we are a part of here today because the Holy Spirit is still with us. The church is still being born and the gospel still is breaking through every barrier and transforming hearts and our world. So this is why I'm so excited about this. Uh, and before we jump into uh, Acts, I think it's helpful for us to have context because every, every uh, uh, passage in the Bible has a context. And so for us, it's good for us to know the background for where Acts came from. So uh, the book of Acts was written by uh, a man named Luke, who was known to be a physician. And what we'll notice in Luke's writings is he, he has a tendency to, he's very interested in stories of miraculous healings, which is not surprising for someone who is a physician. Uh, we also know that Luke traveled with the Apostle Paul in some of his journeys. And so when you read some of Paul's letters later on to churches that they uh, planted or visited, you'll see uh, Luke's name pop up in those uh, letters. Uh, but after some of those journeys, Luke chose to write a two-volume piece, a two-volume series, telling the story of Jesus and the story of how the Holy Spirit birthed the church. And the first one is the Gospel according to Luke, and the second is the Book of Acts. So um, this is what we find out at the beginning of Luke and Acts, is that these 
writings had a very specific purpose and even a specific audience that these writings were, were penned by Luke to a person named Theophilus. Uh, and what there are a lot of different theories about who Theophilus is, but this is what we can tell is that Theophilus most likely was someone who uh, was a Roman convert to the way of Jesus. And somewhere along the way, Theophilus began struggling with his faith, began questioning things, began to kind of doubt and wrestle with what, what, this, what the gospel about Jesus really is about. And so out of love or out of concern, Luke wanted to sit down with his friend and tell the whole story all over again. So Luke went to eyewitnesses, people who knew and walked with Jesus, and said, tell me your story. And then after the time of Jesus, he went to people who saw the church being born and spread throughout the Middle East. And he went to them and asked, I need to know, how, how did this come to be? And out of that, out of what Luke writes, we find uh, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And so this is how the Gospel uh, of Luke began. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, the most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. I think it was out of great love that Luke wants to tell his friends of the certainty of the things that he was taught, the certainty of the good news about Jesus. And man, what an example for us. Think of like the amount of effort this took just for Luke to be with a friend who was struggling, who was wrestling, who was doubting, that, that Luke didn't just, you know, give a slight encouragement and on, on his way, but Luke went to the great lengths to say, no, no, this is true and this is good and it's for you. What, what if we all lived with that kind of uh, compassion? What if we all had a Theophilus that we were seeking to, to encourage like that? Uh, so that's the context, though, of where the book of Acts comes from. That's, what, that's why it was written. That was how it was written. And what we find in the beginning of Acts is that this story begins in a crazy time. So the disciples just had a whiplash experience of knowing and following Jesus, probably with their own hopes, and then to see their beloved Jesus be captured, tortured, crucified on a cross, and with his uh, death and burial, all the hopes that they had, then three days later, Jesus rises again. And so it's in that context that we find the beginning of Acts where people are probably confused. They're trying to figure things out. This is where Acts begins. Chapter 1, verse 3 says, After his suffering, Jesus presented himself to, to them, the disciples, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Jesus was, was with them for 40 days after Easter. Isn't that incredible? Like, I wish we knew more about what happened in those 40 days. Like, who did he appear to? Was he still doing miracles? Did, did he go to people that he had never talked to before? I mean, did it ever just get old? <laughs> Jesus was still around? Probably not. But one thing we do know about these 40 days is that Jesus had a particular talking point, which is the kingdom of God. Jesus wanted them to know what it really meant that, that God's kingdom was still coming to this world, not like a kingdom of this world, but a kingdom that reflected God's passions and priorities, 
a kingdom that was established by justice and mercy, where the humble were raised, where humanity flourished. And it's interesting to me that Jesus is saying that his work is not done. It wasn't completed upon the cross and the empty tomb. The kingdom was still being realized in their presence. And what a surprising kingdom it is. What an upside down kingdom it is. Never would you expect that a man who chose poverty and uh, lived for three years in the public eye with the most ragtag group of disciples could ever amount to much. Yet even Napoleon once spoke of Jesus' kingdom this way. He said, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. And those words are as true today as they have always been. This surprising kingdom, the nature of Jesus' kingdom, is still built upon radical love. Yet the disciples, they struggle to get it. Like even after all they've experienced, even after see, seeing the resurrected Jesus and hearing Jesus talk about the kingdom, they still don't get it. And this is made clear in what they want to talk about. This is found in the next verse, in, in verse 6. Then they gathered around Jesus and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, they wanted Jesus to do what they've always wanted him to do, which is to restore Israel, to kick out the Roman oppressors, to take over the throne and to bring prosperity back to Israel as it once had. But um, that's not what Jesus was after. Um, it's not what Jesus wanted to do. And notice the pronouns. They're, they're saying to Jesus, Lord, are you going to do this? And ignoring their misguided question, Jesus responds with saying something about them. It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And those were the last words that they would hear from the mouth of Jesus. Isn't that crazy? Like, <laughs> after Jesus said that, uh, Scripture says that he ascended into heaven, and the disciples, some versions of Scripture said that they were looking intently to the sky. My version of that is Jesus said this, he rose and ascended to heaven, and they just stood there going, what in the world did he mean by that? I mean, think, think of this. Like, think of like what this probably meant. Like Jesus, his final words as he was descending was like, gave him the seemingly impossible task and promised to be empowered by the Spirit. I think for many of them, they would just been confused by this because just think about what all the experience, they, they finally have Jesus back after the trauma of seeing a beloved friend be crucified publicly, they actually have him back in their midst and probably with Jesus back, all of the hopes came back too. Their hopes of what Jesus was going to do. And, and instead of like Jesus saying, I'm with you, we're gonna charge this mountain together, we're gonna make a difference. Jesus says, I've gotta go and you've got to get to work, but don't worry, I'll be with you as he leaves. <laughs> And so, you know, I think maybe a couple of types of people would love that kind of challenge, but I think others were just probably deeply disappointed by what was that, what's going on. 
But you see, for Jesus, their dreams and their expectations were far too small. Jesus' kingdom is is too large for those limitations. (laughs) He wanted something bigger. So I recently had this experience where a rare time when I was driving, actually driving in our city, and I, I knew my route, my destination. I knew how much time uh, I had to get there, and I had it perfectly planned. Uh, but then I saw that annoying orange sign, you know, the one that says detour. And you, you know the routine. Like Detours are like this involuntary scavenger hunt where you're like, you're driving around just waiting, where's the next arrow, okay, and you're going through small side streets you've never been on with like annoyed residents who have all this traffic all of a sudden. And the whole time you just like are like, come on, just get me back on that road. And finally when you get back on the road you were originally on, you think to yourself, good, I know where I am, I can get going again. When I think about these disciples and what they've just gone through, I think they probably think of this moment as the end of a detour. Like they had a goal, they, had, they knew where they wanted to go, they knew where they wanted to be, and uh, then Jesus says, sorry, we're gonna have to take a detour, and they go through all these hard, weird experiences, but now that Jesus is back, oh, okay, I know where the destination is, I know how we're gonna get there. But you see, at the beginning of Acts, it's not the end of a detour. Jesus is is pointing them to a bridge. Jesus is not concerned on getting them back on track of where they wanted to go and towards the destination of their hopes. Instead, Jesus is pointing at a bridge and bridges are used to get people to places where they cannot go before. It, it, bridges allow people to, to go over barriers that seemed impossible to go over. And that's what Jesus is trying to do in this moment. Jesus is making a way where there was no way. And it seems like with God, oftentimes the bridge that God chooses to use in our lives are those rickety <laughs> bridges that seem like they could fall apart at any moment. Or like one of those rope bridges that you, you're like just one, at, one person at a time. Nope, one person at a time going on this one. Because those moments usually require faith and courage and an abundant amount of trust. So I almost hear Jesus say in the subtext of this passage, I have big plans for you. And there's more than getting back to what was normal. It's more than getting back to status quo. I'm going to send you somewhere where you have never been. That's beyond your comfort. That's beyond your sense of strength. What I have in my mind is something so much greater than the kingdom that uh, that you're imagining. There's a kingdom of God that I want to bring into this world that extends to the ends of the earth. And perhaps maybe that idea of a detour and a bridge, maybe that word picture is what you've experienced in this pandemic even. Maybe what you've experienced in this, what you've wanted it to be is a detour just a highly inconvenient detour that hopefully we can just get back to the way it used to be. We can get back to normal. I think Jesus wants to use the season of your life and our life as a church, not as a detour, but a bridge to get us to a place we haven't experienced yet, to be transformed at the end of this, to walk through a threshold into a new way of living. And what, what was their role in this moment as they were to cross this bridge? Like, what was their role in bringing in the kingdom? 
Well, remember Jesus' words. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That is their role, to be a witness. I've been thinking recently about what it means to be a witness. Because, you know, like many of us, uh, we, we want to witness great things. You know, a couple weeks back, I, I made sure that Dylan was watching the TV when the first SpaceX rocket blasted off, off our, our planet. I know friends that woke up several years ago, they woke up at four in the morning to watch Kate Middleton walk down an aisle and get married and became a princess. I know in 2006, many of you, many of you people here in Austin uh, flew to Pasadena, California and paid top dollar to be in the arena to, to witness Vince Young take UT to win the national, national championship. Sorry, can't stomach saying that. But even more importantly, many of you were there in 1939. You remember this, you witnessed this when Homer Norton led the Aggies to defeat Tulane to become national champions then, 1939, not that long ago. You witnessed it, you were there, right? <laughs> the, the longing to be a witness is, uh, is what Jesus is calling us to, but it's a different kind of witness. It's not just a passive reception of something that's happened. This word witness is a, actually, a many theologians and scholars think that is a key concept to understanding the whole book of Acts, because that word is used 23 times in this book and is found in this all-important verse that you will be my witnesses. And as Jesus was floating off, <laughs> perhaps the most, uh, the loudest words that echoed the most was the words, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Can't you imagine Jesus just, you know, dis disappearing and the, and the disciples going, where did he say we're going? Okay, Jerusalem. I get it. That's where we expect God to be at work. Okay, Judea. Yes. Judea, which is like the region, the area. Okay, sure. Yeah, it's going to be bigger than just Jerusalem. Sure, sure. Samaria. Now, Samaria is the place where you don't want God to be, where you don't expect God to show up. These are the people you despise, you downright dislike. We're supposed to go there? Okay, and then to the ends of the earth. <laughs> so like a stone that's thrown into a still pond, what Jesus is saying, what, what happens here in this moment is going to ripple throughout the world. This is why the disciples' question earlier was way too narrow. It's not about restoring this kingdom. What Jesus is saying, I'm looking to, to the ends of the earth. Like it was for... The, all people in the world that this is the kingdom that I want to be about. It's a fulfillment of the angel's declaration in Luke 2 that this is good news that will cause great joy for all the people. That's how big this kingdom will be. All right, so if that's our role, what does it mean for us to be a witness? What does it mean to us to bear witness? I think for some of us, we that conjures up ideas of like, witnessing an accident or something like that, or, or even like as a Christian, witnessing like going door to door with tracks and that kind of thing. I want us to expand our idea of what does it mean for us to bear witness to the gospel? I think it first and foremost means that we are called to be present where we are. That means 
as people that are following Jesus, we must be accessible, vulnerable, knowable. We need to be people who listen well. For us to, to bear witness means that we situate ourselves here and now. And then we consider how we can point to the power of Jesus as we believe Jesus is present with us. And so how is the spirit of Jesus at work in my surroundings? That is a great question for us as we seek to bear witness. It's not a call to persuade, convince, or debate. It's a calling to be present with others as we are present with God. So here's an example. So last summer, I spent a week uh, with a theologian and author by the name of uh, David Fitch. And my greatest takeaway from our time together was how we talked about being a witness for Jesus. Um, and his approach was he, he became a regular. Now, those who have worked in the food and beverage industry, you know what a regular are. <laughs> There's people who are customers and then there are regulars. And those are people who are there most days. And as a former waiter, you don't get to pick who's what. You know, like sometimes your regulars, for better or for worse, that they're just there. And so, uh, but uh, this individual, David Fitch, he, he chose to become a regular and he was thoughtful about where that was. So living in Chicago, he chose a, a, a McDonald's that was in the inner city. And then later on, he chose like this dive bar, like this kind of uh, dark and gloomy bar that was right near the train tracks when people, working class people would get off of work. That's, that's where they would go. And uh, but what was interesting, what stuck with me is his practice. Before he would enter these places, he would say a prayer, a very specific prayer. It was a, it's a prayer called the prayer of Epiclesis. So this is a prayer that the Roman Catholic priests, they, they say over the elements of communion as they pray that God would take these ordinary elements and transform them into something sacred to the body of Christ, the blood of Christ. And so Dr. Fitch, he, he took that prayer and he used it in a different way. Uh, the, same, the same prayer that was prayed over the elements of community, he would pray over a fast food restaurant full of homeless people and, and for, uh, over this dark seedy dive bar full of people looking for hope. He would pray, Lord Jesus, transform this place. Take the common and ordinariness of, this, of the gathering of this place. Make it sacred ground. And help me to tend your presence as I bear witness to who you are, your love and your power here in this place. And as it would just change things. As he would enter in that place, it, it would, after time, what he found is that even though he's a professor, an author, a theologian, and a pastor, he would say that the greatest ministry he ever had was over Big Macs and stale beer. Why? Well, because he had his track ready you know, to like tell people why they were wrong and he was right. No, 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 no. Okay. So it was, it was because he had his argument memorized. He went to apologetics class and had everything, you know, fixed and ready. Nope. It's because he showed up with the audacious belief that the spirit of Jesus was already at work in that place. It wasn't something that that he had to muster. He just needed to see where Jesus was at work and bear witness to it. In word and in deed, in listening and in speaking, in challenging and consoling, his goal was to partner with the living God whose kingdom can break into wherever. That is something I feel like we can do 
And even if like for me, I just want to challenge us as a community to try that practice out this week, to think about the places and the conversations uh, that we know it's going to come to us and for us to enter into it differently, for us to pray that prayer, devote that place, devote that relationship, devote that conversation to Christ and ask for help to be attentive to where the spirit of Jesus is at work so that we could witness to it. And as, and as we are faithfully present in the world, what I think, what I think could happen is that that surprising kingdom that Jesus established and continues to establish can still be made known in our world. Because this, this is what our hope is, as the Archbishop of Paris, that Cardinal Suhard, he once said, to be a witness means to live in such a way that one's life would not make sense if God did not exist. And I might, if I were so bold, I'd add to those words that to be a witness is to live in such a way that does not make sense if Christ is not the king and if the gospel were not true. That is how we should seek to live. It seeks to root itself in the reality that Jesus is alive and active in this world and calling people to himself, that that Jesus still is displaying himself in sacrificial love sacrificial love. And it's by no chance that the Greek word for this word witness, martyros, which is, of course, where we get the word martyr. Now, I know uh, some religions and some Christians, they'll take that and they'll take it to a different direction, a different meaning. But what I think of the connection between uh, to be a witness and a martyr, I think of this. I think of Jesus's words that Greater love is no one than this, that he or she would lay down their life for another, for their brother, for their sister, and even for their enemy. That type of witness makes no sense unless, unless Jesus is real. And that person has experienced the same reality of Jesus who gave him himself with generosity and compassion and love. So therefore, I'm going to bear witness to what I have experienced by extending that into this world. And as we will see in the book of Acts, it's, that is how everything was changed. That's how our world was transformed, is through common, ordinary people like you and me who were willing to bear witness to this reality of Jesus, who had, had, were strengthened and empowered by the Spirit of Jesus to go into this world following him and his example, regardless, full of courage and grace and mercy and truth. Uh, the preacher and theologian William Willimon, he, he once remarked about this, how great a God to entrust God's work to thoroughly human, frail witnesses. Just the sort of God who would come to us as a Jew who lived briefly, died violently, and rose unexpectedly. And that's the tradition that we're a part of. Like, that's, like, that's our story. So, like, my hope and my prayers for these 50 days is that we would not just read Acts and think, oh, how interesting, that though this is a great story, a great telling of history, but that we would read this and go, this same God that was at work and doing incredibly powerful things then is inviting us into that reality today. That God is not done with his work in expanding his kingdom in Austin, in this moment. Like that is what we've been invited to. It's not just some detour, but actually for us to cross a bridge into a new reality that's empowered by God's presence. And taking us to places that we have not gone before. 
That's what I'm hoping for. That's what I'm praying for. And what history has taught us is that against all odds, there's no limits to what Jesus' kingdom can do. So let's be a part of it.